You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because a god complex is a terrible thing to waste. I'm G.R. McAllister, also known as Greer. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 95, Building and Bending Gender. Welcome, Greer. We are so excited to have you with us today for um, episode 95. Um, We've made it this far. And um, would you mind giving us a quick introduction of you for our listeners? Happy to. So uh, you may know me from such genres as historical fiction, where I write as Greer McAllister, uh, The Arctic Fury, Magician's Lie, and a couple of other ones, uh, or from uh, epic fantasy as G.R. McAllister, where I write the Five Queendom series. The first book, Scorpica, came out last spring, and the next in the series, Arca, is coming this March. Woo! Fantastic. I have to confess, Hooray! I've only just started with Scorpica, but I've been enjoying it so far. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yes, the, the finding time to read thing, isn't it like the cru- it's the cruelest joke of yes. author life that suddenly you have like less time <laughs> to read? I was my students asked me today, they, they were curious how long it takes me to read a book, and they didn't believe me when I said either two days or three months. <laughs> there's no there's no in like between. There is no there's in no between. between. <laughs> yeah. And the longer you're in the business, the more friends you have, and therefore the more friends you have to apologize to exactly. for not reading their books. <laughs> the more books you very much want to read and have not yet read and really intend to read, but... I at least assuage yes, that they're... by, like, buying the books most of the time. So so at least at least <laughs> yes. there's a sale. And that's, that's the part that, that really matters, frankly. <laughs> Oh, in some cases, that's, yeah, more important to buy than to read. Always appreciated. Always appreciated. So wonderful. So um, you you have books on both sides of the of the um, of the line of historical fiction and fantasy. So you get to have both groups of readers telling you that things aren't authentic. That's fun. 100%. Yes. So I thought... When I got out of historical fiction, it was so freeing to write epic fantasy. But of course, the truth is, you're just as bound to rules, except you're the one who made the rules up. So you have no one else to blame, as opposed to the, you know, many, many delightful emails and Goodreads reviews that that will point out, oh, well, you know, the daguerreotype was not invented until blah, blah, blah. And half the time they're wrong, but it's still uh, it's still no fun to get the little emails. Yes. And you can't well actually them back. It's not a good idea to respond to them. Right. No, just not engage. And it's always like it's it's not always usually that guy. Mm. I just I wanted to help you out by letting you know. Thank, thank, thank you for that. Thanks. So, so helpful. You still get those emails <laughs> when it's epic fantasy or secondary world fantasy. Just they're more wrong when they when they correct. <laughs> <laughs> but still. Makes sense. I think my, still they my... come and still they have that thing to say. Of like, you know what you got wrong? And then you'll say, not that because not this world. <laughs> Has nothing to do with our history. Thank you very much for playing. Yes. My favorites will always be the ones who are like, this was anachronistic language. Yeah, um, in in the language that's made up that doesn't actually exist. We're imagining that it's being translated from a fantasy language. So no, that doesn't, thank you. Thank you for playing, but oh, wow. But yes, so what is something that you have enjoyed getting to build after after writing sort of within the, the research confines of historical, getting to build it for yourself in fantasy? What's been something fun? Uh, it's everything. I mean, it's it's starting completely from scratch and saying, what's the religion and what's the culture and what are the clothes? And, and choosing a level of technology was particularly interesting to me because I have been writing um, American historical between 1850 and 1905. So getting into that initially, I'm like, 
when were phones uh, and when when were sequins invented? Um, and the answer is the, the ancient Egyptians had sequins. So you're definitely so, not. So much older. Yeah, we, have, right. we have liked sequins and yeah. yeah. So you're not wrong. <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> Which probably somebody might email any of us about. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but particularly that sort of choosing, you know, am I going to go with the, the sort of, you know, is it is it guns? Is it swords? Is it rocks? Uh, you know, what's what's the weaponry, or as my ten year old would say, the weaponry of uh, of the world. <laughs> um, I love it when when people learn things by reading because you can tell because at least in his case he doesn't know how to pronounce it. So I'm like, oh, okay, rivels. The, he and one of his friends uh, turned out to be rivels a couple of years ago. So we should be writing all these things down. <laughs> we should be. <laughs> No, I love that because like once you pick a tech level, like it answers a lot of other questions and opens up other questions. And it's just such a fun like choice to get to make. Um, Because when you withhold certain things tech wise from your characters, like you get to see what they do instead, um, which is fun. And then when you get to throw magic in there, too, that that makes it even more fun. Like, so what what things are we going to make up for tech using magic and what aren't we and how is that all going to shake out? So... That's one of my favorite spots, too, to play with. Especially when I remember early on in my process when I was writing the first Meridian books, I would hit something and be like, well, I can't have that because that isn't technologically right. And then the other part of my brain went, why do you think it's not technologically right? Why don't, like, you just have it. Just make that choice. And it's like, oh, right, I can do that. And Because it it is fun to interrogate it because there are these things that like aesthetically go together in our brains of like, well, when they had this, they also had that. And some of them make sense from a tech development standpoint or like, well, you had to invent this before you could invent that or whatever. But some of them don't. And there's no real reason why, you know, you can't have Tommy guns and frock coats like they Mm. could, in fact, exist simultaneously. So it's kind of it's it's kind of fun to like push back on those expectations and interrogate. Why do I think that these things go together? Much like when somebody says steampunk, it immediately conjures up something Victorian. Somebody says diesel punk, it immediately conjures up World War Two, even though, no, you don't have to do that. But yet some people get very sort of locked into those mindsets and, and that's more of the things you have to you have to reteach your readers of how to how to actually read your text. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned enjoying getting to build from scratch is religion, society, culture, and a big part of that is going to be gender and how do gender relationships and rapports work and that's kind of how where we decided to dive in for this episode and and explore and one of the things that i loved when we were kind of emailing beforehand figuring what are we going to talk about is that you said from scratch and i thought that is such a good point because so often when we are developing our world building you know what are we starting from Sometimes we are starting from a historical perspective or perception. Sometimes we're starting from wanting to reverse that or reverse engineer something or flip it. And it's just where you start in some ways affects what you end up with and what you want to end up with. So I guess what are some of the benefits and drawbacks from different starting points for gender and world building? You know, what is the benefit from starting from scratch versus taking a historical reality or perception and building or playing from that? I think uh, having written both fantasy and historical fiction, I think that sort of historical fantasy sweet spot in the middle might be the best to be (laughs) and to not start from scratch and to have a place that you're anchoring because it is sort of like you were saying, Marshall, about teaching the reader how to read the text. I had such trouble um, when I was trying to start from scratch and build a truly female default matriarchal world and not use language that we're used to using, like saying, you know, sorcerer is, it could be a male sorcerer, it could be a female sorcerer, it could be somebody else entirely, um, but not to say sorceress, not to say princess, not to say, you know, because those are sort of implied lesser or, or branched off from the main. And then I was really worried. I'm like, oh, if I say this is a lion, they're not going to know if it's a lioness because I can't say lioness. Uh, and I spent an inordinate amount of time like thinking about <laughs> and digging for <laughs> those things. And I, I had the word prince in like the fifth line of Skorpikov for like 
10 drafts and I'm like, oh wait, I can't have a prince if I'm, you know, not going to either call women princes or say princess, which I have promised myself I'm not going to do. Um, so there's, there's a lot less that you can, that, that your readers take for granted or that you can take for granted that your readers will take for granted, which is both great. And, you know, it's both something that, as you can tell, occupied my mind a lot. Um, but it's also very freeing. So it, it's uh, kind of a, a fun and interesting thing. Um, I think that people do fill in uh, a lot more if you're able to point to, well, this is 1910 New York, or this is, uh, you know, the, the it's a castle in Scotland or something. People are bringing more to it. And you're still going to need to do the judicious selection of detail. But I think you are, you're starting a little bit uh, farther along in the world building. If you can pull things and then, like you said, just change them if you don't <laughs> like them. Uh, you don't have to use the George R. R. Martin excuse of, well, this is what it was like, so it has to be this way. Like, no yes. part of it has to be that way. <laughs> because because it's, it's authentic. So authentic, with dragons. Authentic. Yes. Yes, authentic. Yeah. As it was. <laughs> well, and it's, I think you make such a good point that, you know, when you when you pick a historical antecedent, whether you're writing historical fiction, historical fantasy, or even just basing a second world off of some historical time period of reality, it's like you have you have those pieces already kind of plugged in for you. And your reader is going to plug them in whether you want them to or not. And I think that's one of the challenges, right, of like, once you have referenced something historical, or at least even just sparked a reader to think, oh, this reminds me of fill in the blank. And then they start filling in those pieces. And so you have to be aware in some ways, if you are trying to do something different, of the spots that a reader's going to fill in. That if I say anything that makes a reader think medieval England, they have a whole set of preconceptions that they're going to plug in. And if I don't want those preconceptions, I have to be active in replacing them with something else. And like you were saying, training your reader, getting them on board. As you also mentioned, torturing yourself over it, over what are they going to think about? What are they going to, to you know, jump to when they see this? Which is why you're on this podcast, because we all torture ourselves with these things. Fantastic. So, you're among right friends. Right no, you did make me think, as you brought up, you know, that you didn't want to use words like princess or lioness or anything like that. Since, as Rowena mentioned earlier, a lot of what we're, at least in theoretically doing, is taking these things from this completely other world where it would be a completely different language set and essentially translating that to English. And that is a fascinating thing of when you're doing that, if you're essentially translating from a language that wouldn't necessarily have the same gender coding that English has, what's the choice you make in terms of bringing it back into English? Would lioness be the normal word? Would that be the correct translation? Or, I mean... That's the sort of thing that'll drive you crazy. And I commend you for, for, for diving into that because because just for that reason, when you're building something that the cultural base is going to be something so different and thus their point of view of how you express that is going to be so radically different. How do you bring that into English where the language itself has so much baggage and that's what you're writing in because that's what you know. Right. And that's what the readers, that's what the readers want. Uh I could. I could. We are contracted to write the book in English. We have to. It does say that. I wrote it entirely in my conlang, and here's the book, and here's a dictionary. Good luck. Have fun. One thing I was thinking about, too, when we when we started talking about this topic was, for a while there, doing, like, gender-flipped, either gender-flipped casting or gender-flipped societies kind of became a bit of a trend, and we're still playing with it in some ways and still doing it. What are do you think are the, the benefits and drawbacks to playing playing that game? Well, I think it's interesting. I think there are very few, there are some, but I think there are very few matriarchal societies in sci-fi and fantasy. And if you look across the bookshelf of books released in a year, the number that are set in matriarchal societies versus patriarchal societies is, is quite small. And part of that is if you're pulling from any historical base, you're probably pulling uh, pulling from a patriarchy. And so to pull that apart feels inauthentic, feels, you know, not right. But again, we can change any any kind of detail. And the flipping thing is interesting because I uh, did get a reader comment at some point about, 
well, this is just lazy, you know, the uh, because the men are taking the women's parts and the women are taking the men's parts. And for example, the men are, you know, the beautiful ones and the, the showy ones and the women are more muted. And I didn't get that. I, I didn't build that world detail from women being thought of as, as Paragon's beauty in, in modern society. I got it from nature. I got it from peacocks and frogs and, and male displays. And so people are still going to bring that, like we were talking about before, people are still going to bring what they're what they're going to bring. And gender is a really, it's a, it's a really interesting, rich dimension. One more thing about matriarchy I want to say is there was, there's a mini trend of sort of some people call it gender plague where all the men die off or all the women die off. Mm -hmm. That's my least favorite kind of matriarchy to read because I feel like it implies that the women can only be in charge if all the men are gone. And I don't think that that's really fair. So, um, but there was, but there was, there were several books along those lines. And then you can't really think of it as men versus women. You can't think of it as a binary because that's not embracing the whole of gender. So there are also really interesting books, um, thinking of like Monica Burns, um, shoot, what is that book called? It has a whip spider on it, but it takes place in sort of say 1013, 2013 and 3013. And by 3013, people have evolved beyond gender. Everybody has the same bodies and they choose, you know, they choose what kind of person they want to be. They choose everything, uh, which is really interesting. So there are so many different ways you can play it. But I think in general, the easiest way to play it is to base it on on the types of societies that we've already seen and the societies that are recorded in history, which is not the same as all the societies that have ever been, right? But all we have is the historical record. So that's where a lot of people are starting from. That book is The Actual Star by Monica Byrne. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's a great title too, The Actual Star. You know, one thing I think is interesting too is you know, I think it's pretty clear from looking at um, your series that gender was going to be a cornerstone idea of the world building, that this was something that you wanted to work with that idea. And so starting from that, did that affect how you played out, obviously, language? What other elements of world building ended up falling, kind of like you, you tipped over the domino of gender, and now these are going to fall too? or be affected by that, or that you had to kind of play with or do fun stuff with once you had decided that gender was going to be something that was going to be a cornerstone of this world and what you wanted to work with. I wanted to sort of play out how it affected everything, right? Religion. And I've got five queendoms. So I was able to also play with not all, not every queendom thinks of things the same way. There's one that's just warrior women that kicks out baby boys when they're born and there just are no men at all. There's Paxum where they're pretty equal, except that only women can be uh, lawmakers. If the five queendoms uh, thing didn't tip you off, but um, they're all, you know, they're all queens. They're all, every one of them is run by a woman, but they're very different women. Spoiler alert, in yeah. case you didn't catch up. In case that. you didn't read the subtitle of the series, um, it's happening. Although it's hilarious how often I will be talking to somebody about the book and they've read the book and they love the book and they know the book and they still say kingdom when they're talking about the the thing that uh, one of the queens rules over. It's just so, it's so ingrained. I find it really interesting. Yeah, so I was running it through religion, through culture. I think some of the things, if like I said, it, it sort of started from female default versus male default, like the way that we say guys, and just everybody is supposed to be included in the in the male. If women have are in charge and have always been in charge, the default is the female, and then men are just sort of included in in the female. So it, affect, it affects everything. Uh, it's more communal child rearing. The warrior women nation is it, very different from the other ones. Uh, and religion is different. I'm rambling a little bit because <laughs> uh, there's so much that I want to talk about. It's like everything. Well, I th you know, I think that, like we could probably take time to kind of break down some of those, you know, that if, if you're going to think about, for example, religion and also just sort of like social values and beliefs that hold a society together. I mean, how did, how did that play out in your world? It's sort of the, the religion I think was interesting because again, to just sort of play out, 
I wanted to have a pantheon, and not all of the gods are female, but the most important gods are female. There's the All-Mother, and she gave, gives birth to three daughters, and uh, having it made sense to me that a set of nations that had always venerated the female would would have that also in their pantheon. And there are, you know, gods of death and luck and bandits and, and all sorts of things that are male or, or other, but the, the most powerful ones are, are female. Uh, I will say also about language, one of the most fun things about world building for me um, that I never got to do in historical fiction, I get to do now in epic fantasy, is profanity. <laughs> uh, what people say, <laughs> what they swear on, what they swear by. Um, I stole a little bit uh, from Pompeian graffiti uh, that they would say, you know, oh, you know, Juno's lower beard. Um, so Velja's lower beard is a is an important swear in uh, in one of my nations. I love the fact of like how many of our guests have fessed up to swearing being their favorite world building or one of their favorite world building elements because it's so true. It reveals so much about a society, right? Like, what do you consider sacred and what do you consider profane is going to come out in what you say when you stub your toe. Right. Right. Like it's just, it's, it's there. It's just, it's really kind of cool. I love that, that you built a pantheon that considered what it would look like um, in a more matriarchal society. One thing I was kind of thinking about too, is if you have a society that has, has religious belief, but doesn't necessarily have gods and goddesses, that gender still affects expression of religion. Like who are your religious leaders? Who is considered, you know, acceptable to have as a religious leader? Do you have um, the concept of marriage as a religious concept, depending on how gender plays out in the society and like all kinds of stuff that interferes with like, yeah, how you how you think about about your religion? How much does the religion how much does the religion explicitly or implicitly reinforce those gender norms or, or not? Right. Who gets to be priests? And then if the priests, you know, one one of the nations, Sestia, is more religious than the others. And so their queen is actually their high priest also. Uh, and it's very, they're very interesting because they're uh, the sort of their upper echelon of the priesthood has to be chaste, but everybody else is very free love and, and do what you need to do. And based on the walking marriage concept of the matriarchal society, um, I want to say it's the Masao, the Moso that sort of the women choose and the men um, can be, you know, you can have a walking marriage with somebody, they'll come over for the night, they'll leave in the morning. And if you don't want them around anymore, you say walking marriage dissolved, you're out. <laughs> um, and the women raise the children in communal communal households with the um, the uncles, the, the brothers of the women are sort of there as, as helpers. And then when they marry, they go off to... Um, or if they, you know, they go to their walking marriages in, in other households. So that's how marriage is in one of the queendoms, one of them um, sort of honoring their god. Uh, they have two husbands. The the saying in, uh, in that queendom is one for the head and one for the bed. So you've got one <laughs> who's your thinking partner and one who's your other kind of partner. But I was able, again, to sort of play with that because I did want to look at marriage, I mean, right? What a rich thing to look at from gender relations and, and gender norms and how that gets expressed uh, in our worlds, in the places that we've created, either from scratch or not. I mean, I think marriage and then and then from that, like branching out the, what is a family? What constitutes a family? And even, you know, branching off of that, what are the most important relationships in someone's life? Is it your family? Is it a marriage? Or depending on a lot of factors, but gender being one of them, are friendships or business partners or siblings actually your closest relationships, which is very different from what most of us experience in our real world. But in a fantasy world, it could certainly play out that way that, you know, your most important relationship is a mentor-mentee relationship with a parent-sibling. Right. Or if you have an army, it's, you know... Fellow soldiers, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. I was going to say, in a project I'm currently developing, I came up with this completely wild idea of every person has four completely different kinds of marriages that mean different things. Of course things. you did, Marshall. And of course, of course I did. did. And then as soon as I did it, I'm like, I have made such a mess for myself in terms of <laughs> how am I going to teach the readers that 
spouse means four completely different things depending on who it's to and why that marriage exists and though i want to circle back to one of the things you said about how like the priestesses were chased and that's another thing that was like that's a huge choice of like does religion is chastity a a thing that religious leaders need to have or is a valued thing at all within the that culture within within that religion i mean i know that the only reason why why chastity became a thing in catholicism was basically whoever was like the pope or near the pope at the time had broke had a terrible breakup with his mistress and then was just like this is terrible we should never get married <laughs> that should just be a rule <laughs> that, that just we don't do it because because this sucks <laughs> and domino effect from there but like that that is i think a crucial thing to examine of what are the values that underlie that that then are reflected in say what the you know the high priests or high priestesses have to do as part of being high members of the religion yeah I mean, I think it's interesting because, I mean, the debate still comes up in the Catholic Church now of should priests be allowed to marry? And it's this really interesting tension of like, well, if a priest had a had a you know spouse and perhaps family, like that's a value add to their ability to do their job versus the traditional argument of no, that's an entanglement and a distraction to their ability to do their job. And it's kind of like how you think about relationships and how you think about especially gendered relationships like really affects a lot of things and what you think about how society works and what what is valuable and what you want you know ideally people to be doing in a society and obviously power and power structures both like official and unofficial if you're going to play with gender are going to do interesting things so you've got a society in which women are making all the laws are in charge we certainly have historical societies where men are primarily or completely making all the laws and then we have societies where um we're aiming for more equality or more equity and what is that you know what can that look like in fantasy yeah, I find it interesting. The more um, egalitarian and tending toward matriarchal societies I've found when I read tend to be more toward the the sci-fi um, versus the fantasy end of things that people will say, you know, well, we've evolved beyond that. We we used to be like sort of the Star Trek idea, like we used to see like race and stuff, but now we don't, which would be great, but we're not there yet. Uh, so it's interesting to me when I when I see that more in sci-fi than fantasy. But it's again, it's all made up. We get to do this uh, and do it to ourselves, right? As as world building masochists, um, making up you know four times four types of marriage for everybody, living up to the name of the podcast. There can't do anything easy. I just yeah. don't know. <laughs> well, and in some ways too, perhaps because we haven't ever had a great example of it imagining a society with perfect equity is actually really hard it's it's easier to imagine a matriarchal society than a totally equitable society because in some ways i can reverse some of the things right that i'm like okay in patriarchy it looks like this what would it look like with women instead um but to imagine complete equity i i have a harder time that's that's sad that I'm admitting that I have a harder time imagining that, but I think it's definitely worthwhile to poke at and pursue a little bit. What would that look like? What would what would equi- perfect gender equity within a society look like? I agree with that. I think it's I think it's trickier because, again, sort of it would be great if we evolved beyond the need to to identify gender, but that's part of people's. It's part of identity. It's part of prejudice. It's part of how people interact with each other uh, through a lens and imagining that lens being gone entirely is is really really hard so i think there's a lot that authors can do as they world build to say well i'm going to make sure that i'm not that i'm not as an author putting you know this gender overrepresented this gender underrepresented and i always think of it as sort of the tolkien (laughs) problem where if you've only got two women uh they're sort of standing in for everybody. Uh, and the same problem if you only have a couple of men uh, in a sea of, of women. So I think more representation frees you up to 
do more with those characters and to say, oh, okay, well, this person's a terrible person. Like I, I have mothers in my book who like, there are mothers who give up their lives for their children. And there are, are, are mothers who would be perfectly willing to kill their children if it means they get more power. So I don't have to say, well, I'm saying something about motherhood with this character because I'm saying it with a lot of different characters, which is the fun part of having a, a massive cast, which is another great thing about epic fantasy versus my my historical fiction. Previously, my historical fiction has slightly smaller casts, although I did write a book with 13 points of view. So that was uh, that was a choice. <laughs> Speaking of mac- masochism. Maybe Marshall remembers. I think it was KB Wagers who said that um, whenever they had to name a new character or or like as like a side character or a background character they rolled a die to see if it was going if they were going to end up with you know male female or non-binary just depending on on how the dice fell to kind of break out of the idea of defaulting characters in one way or the other I like that. Yeah. That does sound like it was KB waiters but I could be I, I think it was <laughs> I think it was I could be lying though you never know <laughs> Sometimes I do that. We've also had a lot of people on the show. We have. <laughs> some of it, some of it starts to blend, blend together. But one thing I was you know, thinking about, too, is gender isn't always our starting point in world building. Sometimes there's another factor that is, in some ways, the hook factor, right? The one that we're saying, this is where I'm going to start from because this is my fantasy world is this thing. And it may or may not be gender. And so sometimes instead of, of gender then tipping over religion, maybe it's religion tipping over gender. Are there, are there books that you have seen do interesting things with that or examples that you guys can think of? If the world's going to be like this, then you have to think about gender in a different way. One that's come to mind, I can't think of a particular book, but often magic throws that in there. Of if, if you have magic, well then, why is gender working in a very traditional historical sense, if say women can have equivalent magical powers to men, okay, so maybe on average, men are more physically strong than women, but oh, now we have magic. So why would we default to those assumptions? Like the power, right? Right, right. It was one of Elizabeth Bear's books where to get magic, you had to be sterilized. So there were a lot more men who had magic than women because the surgery for men, a lot simpler. <laughs> and so therefore, <laughs> and so therefore is like for the women who went to magic, you, you had to really be devoted to like, okay, you're, you're going to get a, a much more complicated surgery to be able to activate your magic. And because the main character in that book was, was a woman who was like, nope, gonna do it. Gonna have the magic. And, Cut it out of me. There was a choice that was built into the world building of how magic works in, in here and thus is going to create a disparity by the nature of how the magic works. Right. Well, and, and not just assuming yeah. that that disparity would exist no matter what. Right. <laughs> I think which is kind of the default that you have to interrogate. Like, so why? Why does that default exist? Or should that default exist? Or, or you know. Yeah. Why did, why did I make that choice? And Right. And if I made a choice that made this thing happen, but I don't want that thing to happen, what intermediate choice can I make to justify that that thing is not happening? It's right. all tapestry, right? Yeah. I always think it's interesting, too, when, um, you know, people, especially, it's, it's, it's a that guy response, but when it's like, <laughs> well, but biology, like, but women are the ones who have babies. It's like, well, but you could make societal choices that would make that whole thing look different if you have communal child rearing, for example. Or in a fantasy world, like, yes, historically, for much of history, no one else could really nourish babies except for their mothers for the first six months or so. But if you live in a fantasy world, maybe there's a plant that does that. Maybe you have the formula plant, (laughs) you know? You can can make choices that are going to upend um, defaults that we might perceive in gender. Right. Or maybe there's maybe it's somebody's magical gift to make milk or to produce milk. So or, you know, wet nurses are a bigger part of society. You know, there are ways to yeah. ways to go around those things if it's important to you in your in your world building. Right. And to what extent is non-binary gender expressed and appreciated and welcomed in the world, I think, is something that hasn't 
been explored a whole heck of a lot yet in fantasy. Um, again, like you were saying, maybe more in sci-fi than in fantasy. Yeah. There's some interesting, um, well, I thought about a book and then I realized it was sci-fi. Um, <laughs> River Solomon um, <laughs> has one where it's sort of, it's, it's non-binary is dominant. And I think that, that that's an interesting way to look at things. So again, if we can imagine literally anything we want, why are we not you know, pushing it to the, to the boundaries um, and taking bigger leaps uh, into, into the unknown? Nian Yang's Tensor series is a fantasy where non-binary is the default until people in their adulthood choose a gender or choose not to choose a gender. I believe mm. that's how that one works. But the social default is, is non-binary until... There you go. Yeah, I mean, even just how we raise kids. Do you raise kids in highly gendered environments or do you raise kids in less gendered environments? And, I mean, not that historically quite a bit of the world wasn't very gendered and binary gendered, but, you know, we did put boys in dresses for a really long time and that was normal. And I think that there was in some ways less training of very tiny children (laughs) than there is now in terms of you will play with trucks and wear blue and pants, only pants. Yeah. This is for you. Pink, pink was considered a masculine color uh, for boys. I think in, was it as late as the 1930s? Um, yeah, it was like, like late Victorian into 1930s, yeah. frequently considered. And and if you look earlier, like 18th century, it's like all equal. There's boys in pink and girls in pink and boys in blue and girls in blue and lots of kids in white because you can bleach it. So <laughs> actually much smarter in a lot of ways. And, and everybody peacocking. And everybody peacocking. Which is, <laughs> yeah. With the rough pumpkin hose <laughs> yes. and all the good stuff. And color. Color yes, everywhere. wigs, powder, yes. you know. All of it. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to dream big in your fantasy world and kind of swing for the fences, how do you on-ramp a reader without completely losing them into <laughs> new or different or unexpected expectations, particularly with gender? It's so hard. I think I don't know if you guys write this way too, but I write I write the chunk of exposition and then I throw it out or I pull it apart and you know, I had Scorpica has a prologue that's not a prologue. It's like a page and a half and it just doesn't say anything at the top. Uh, it's just a little little introduction, a little, you know, amuse-bouche. Um, that sort of lays out stuff really fast, but it was like 10 pages that got crammed down to to a page and a half just to introduce the overall idea because I felt like if I just drop you into here is a queen waking up the night before this human sacrifice you will read it with the lens that you brought as opposed to I'm giving you I'm just sketching a real quick lens read it through this lens and then that will carry you through the rest of the book to say hey this drought of girls is going to happen there are five queendoms there you know women all over the place uh, running the show and always have been and now I'm going to tell you about one of the queens and her story and what happens when she gets home and her mentee challenges her to a battle to the death like you read it differently hopefully you still read it hopefully it would still be a really cool (laughs) book uh, if you didn't go in with the page and a half but um, I think in some cases you can't help it I think in some cases you have to give a little bit of an intro Um, But if you don't, then I think you just have to make sure that that first scene lays out, uh, is hinting at how things are different, is hinting either, you know, the priest class is running in the show or people can breathe underwater or whatever, you know, what what do they value? What's most interesting? What's the conflict? Make sure you have to do a whole bunch of things in the first chapter, but I suppose that's that's always... uh, true always the case yeah i like how you you phrase that of of changing out the lens yeah that it's you know unless unless you're tolkien you can't get away with the giant concerning hobbits Hobbits (laughs) prologue but we can tell the reader in so many words you need you need to change your lens you need to pop out the one that you came in with and and pick up mine instead so i i think that that's yeah exactly whether you're doing it in a prologue or whether you are sprinkling it in very carefully throughout that first chapter or so that it's 
signaling to the reader something new, something different. This is what you need to read this through. I always feel my first chapters are, especially in the early drafts, are these Byzantine exercises and how much can I tell the reader without actually telling them so that they just sort of absorb the vibe and and move along with it rather than I feel like I should have to stop and explain but like okay I'll see but see that's always been the technique I prefer to do is under explain and then give it to a beta reader and then have them go like you got to tell me about this part because <laughs> usually because then that usually tells me which is the specific thing they don't get and that I have to explain and the, the other three things I thought I also had to explain. No, that's fine. That's fine. But explain this part and the rest will go. I mean, in some ways, <laughs> it, it always ends up being an exercise in trust. Yes. Right? Like, I am going to give you, the reader, what I need you to understand. And, and I'm not going to be obtuse about it, but I may not bonk you on the head with it either. Um, but I'm going to trust that you're going to pick it up and I'm going to trust that you're going to read in good faith and pick up those pieces and construct the lens and then read the book through that lens and some won't some just won't and honestly there are occasionally and there are occasional readers who won't and that's not your reader <laughs> and accepting that not everyone is going to on ramp some of them are going to like i don't know make it halfway up the ramp and then just drive straight off into the into the interstate below and go along their merry way and and that's fine that's okay that was that wasn't your reader i stumbled upon a book club that basically did that with velocity that the whole book club this this was not their book and that's fine and you know what because it because it was someone else's book it could not be their book it cannot be everyone's book right exactly they can't give you 30 pages to just like get your feet under them and i i feel like it is you know it's a promise that you're making to the reader it's a bargain that you're making you're like okay you're gonna if you follow me i'm gonna show you amazing things but if you don't understand everything on the first five pages, that's all right. Because um, then you'd you'd be over explaining to some people, right? So definitely the the if they bail early, they weren't your reader. Philosophy is a good one to to keep in mind. <laughs> you know, one of the things too that I feel like can work well, um, if especially if you were not going to prologue it, if you're going to dive into a first chapter, is showing those world building elements in relationship to one another. Because then you get to do like two furs, three furs, four furs, where it's like you show one detail, but it actually reveals like multiple layers of things. And I feel like I imagine language was something like that for you, Greer, that like you pick a word and it's going to tell the reader all kinds of things if they just pay attention. Yeah, there's a particular word uh, in a childbirth scene that means that they've got a word for breach in every one of the five queendoms that's a little bit different because it's important because childbirth is important. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's those little things. And again, the profanity uh, that I get to say, you know, what do, what do they swear by? And you, you know, you know what a character is about by the way that they're, when they're doing it. So. And how often they do it. Yes. Yes. Always love the one star uh, reviews for language and in my historicals, if I use, if I use words that they don't think are appropriate. Uh, even you if they're historical, was not their book. Was not their that book. That was not your reader. Yeah, I got I got one of those in Velocity too. Where, but see, there was one where I I found myself in a trap because I had made this very sex positive culture, but I kept finding myself using "fuck" as a pejorative, and I'm like, but they wouldn't do that, and I had to keep catching mm-hmm. myself of like, you know, don't say you know, this fucking thing, because you wouldn't say that in any sort of negative way. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I have to totally rethink how I'm having how I'm having them swear. So, <laughs> yeah, you can't, you know, saying like son of a whore or whatever. Whores are not inherently bad. Like, why? Why are you doing that to either of them? So you have to make sure that that's not there. How many swears are very specifically gendered and very like... And very misogynistic in there being very, very specifically gendered. You have to... The, some genitals are positive. Some genitals are negative. If you look at how <laughs> things are used yeah. uh, in modern society. And so I have one, if you'll excuse the, the little bit. Um, one character says, oh, you can't spend too much time among men or you'll be soft as a scrotum. Uh, because that's not how... <laughs> That's not how we talk about it, but that's how they talk about it. So I love that. Uh, that that's was my, so that good. was my favorite. That's so that was good. So my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that's that's how it gets into the language and that's how you know and it's just a throwaway line but it's like you're talking about the twofer you 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 pick that yeah it is kind of funny too because like i mean so much of how how we do think about anatomy and gendered anatomy is influenced by other norms in society because if you i mean like Grow some balls makes no sense for toughen up because they 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 are a rather sensitive and not very tough organ. Correct. Like, That's what why I'm do saying. We say this? Why do we say this? Because of other preconceptions that we have about masculinity and femininity, and that have very little to do with the actual anatomy mm-hmm. thereof. On the magicians, I think it's the character of Margot who just decides that that the, like that's a dumb phrase, and she just adopts. <laughs> Like just saying, you know, ovary up or to be ovary honest. up. Is what she says. Yeah, I love Margot. She's the best. She is the best character on that show, hands down. I was thinking about how the word bastard means nothing if if your concepts of marriage yeah. are something completely different, or if the concept yeah. of you know being born out of wedlock is just not a concept within within your culture. Again that wipes that out and, as a... And why why is it a concept in your culture? Unless there is something having to do with like inheritance or passing down titles or who owns property. Like, if you don't have those things, why would you care if you're a bastard? It <laughs> yeah. doesn't really matter. I do find myself second guessing like every single aspect of society, not specific to gender, but when I made up a society instead of basing it on something... I decided that it was going to be very based on sort of a pan-Mediterranean culture and that they don't have trade with um, places that are farther away for a number of reasons that would come out in later books if I get to write later books. But I found myself describing something as silky. And I'm like, wait, they don't have silk, so I can't describe. And then I'm like, well, well, maybe they have spider silk. So they could they could describe that silk, but not like the other kind. Nobody wears silk. You can't like get enough spiders for somebody to wear silk. What are they wearing? They have the platonic idea ideal of silk so that they can describe something as silky, but they do not actually have the fabric itself. It's right. Just, it's it's just an ideal that yes. exists. Yes. As yet unfulfilled by a, by a material item. A fabric will be this way. I dream right. of it. <laughs> I dream of it one day. Oh, I got to fake my way through Dynamo because I really wanted to refer to somebody as a roly-poly Dynamo. Um, and I decided that in this world, there is a little bug called a Dynamo that is famous for moving around really fast um, because a Dynamo itself is like a machine that would not exist. Um, but they have Dynamos uh, in the Five Queenums. It just means something different. So... Um, <laughs> you can make it you can make it work these, these, these are these are the, these are the games we play with ourselves to get to say that one line that we really wanted to say <laughs> i mean i drove myself crazy of trying to decide what to call a very long foot race in a world where the city of marathon greece does not exist right did <laughs> and, you come up with something did you i called it an endurance so Ooh. okay I think I would call it a nope. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't exist in my world. My personal world. So so we always end our guest star episodes um, by asking you to give us a little bit of trivia or a piece of world building that we can transplant into the world that we are building live on air that we should really go back and do some more with that at some point. It's been a while, listeners. We're sorry. We've, we've taken a little vacation. We've been from... negligent, and partly because we've yes. already made it so so much. We're overwhelmed. by <laughs> in, a, in a good way. Delightfully overwhelmed. So we would, we would, ask, we would ask of a parting gift, um, a parting gift from you, Greer. I was going to say, before I do that, that you could call the world that you're building Byzantine if Byzantium existed in the, uh, <laughs> which, in the world, yes. which yes. you <laughs> did. Otherwise, you just have, have to, to call, call it really complicated. Else. Yes. And I'm not sure that we... Have we? I don't think we've created a city yet that would be the equivalent of of Byzantium. To we're going to need to do that so that we're able to then refer to the world as that thing. Yes, got it. So, you so go. you've given us homework. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm sure you really appreciate it. Um, yes. Yeah, so so that is something to think about. Um, but what I wanted to throw at you um, to incorporate in your non-Byzantine or whatever uh, ornate world is a river that eats people. Ooh. Unless somebody has already suggested Ooh. that, no. but I'm kind of no. hoping they have. So I have follow-up <laughs> like questions. It. So, is it 
Is it like that that river in Scotland that looks like a perfectly nice river, but like, no, it's like deep and super crazy tides and somebody that falls in there, they're just gone. Or is it literally, no, it's eating them. Like it's, consu- it's you know, chomp, chomp. So, so you're like, is, is this a, is this a metaphorical eating? Or is this Or does no one really know? It could be either, and it could be that part of the plot is figuring out whether it is a supernatural chomp-chomp river or just a really dangerous river that a myth grew up around to tell children to stay away, um, which I think is where a lot of great myths come from. Um, But yeah, is it Scylla and Charybdis like the actual rocks and whirlpools, or is it, you know, is it uh, some people who did wrong uh, by the gods? So I will leave you to decide. I love this. The, I like the it a river lot. chompers. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It was delightful to get to meet you and to get to talk, talk shop a bit, um, especially um, getting to dive into building gender and thinking differently about it. So thank you so much. Thanks. It was absolutely wonderful. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on February 15th, where Darcy Little Badger, author of Latsue and a Snake Falls Earth, will join us to talk about oceanic world building. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, Rowena's Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, or my new novelette, Hultachaya. Links to all of that information can be found at our website, worldbuildingformasochist.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about it on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world to your making and help us all build until it hurts.